Oh, hello. Fancy seeing you here on a Monday morning, but glad you could join us. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, we will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their businesses to success in an ever-competitive business climate. So pour yourself a hot cup and enjoy the show. Welcome to another special episode of Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today I have a, a really awesome guest. His name is Randall O'Toole, and he is a land use and transportation policy analyst who works with a variety of think tanks, including Colorado's Independent Institute, Independent Institute Hawaii's Grassroots Institute, and Oregon's Cascade Policy Institute. He's also written several books on the follies of government planning, and including American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. He's also taught environmental economics at Yale, UC Berkeley, and Utah State University. Randall, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, I heard you on a uh, my friend's podcast, uh, the Market Urbanism Report, Scott Beyer, and you said things opposite of what Scott is is trying to make happen with uh, his movement with Yimbyism and getting uh, housing more affordable. So I, I kind of want to start out there is that uh, his idea is to densify cities that we need to really densify them, and your idea is quite the opposite, and that single family housing maybe is the true affordable um, way out of this housing crisis we have. So if you could just kind of start there and kind of give us your philosophy and where you, where you, where you landed and, and, you know, the thinking behind that. Well, the first thing we have to look at is why is housing expensive in the first place? And uh, uh, Scott's idea is that single family zoning has made housing expensive, and so we need to eliminate single family zoning to allow more multifamily construction. And by increasing the supply, that will make housing cheaper. The only problem with that is every city in America except Houston has had single family zoning for 60 years or more, and housing wasn't expensive until recently and only in a few places. And the few places where housing is expensive uh, have something else in common, not single-family zoning, but what's called growth management, which are regulations on the uh, development of rural areas around the cities. Denver has an urban growth boundary. Boulder has green belts. San Francisco, Los Angeles have urban growth boundaries. Portland and Seattle have urban growth boundaries. Uh, Hawaii has state regulations. Uh, uh, state laws limiting development outside of urban areas. So basically, when you start limiting development at the urban fringe, that makes housing expensive. So if you make housing expensive by limiting development at the urban fringe, how is it going to make housing affordable by getting rid of single-family zoning and turning it into multifamily? Well, the, the the idea that Scott has is that there is a housing market, and by turning single-family neighborhoods into multifamily, will increase the supply, and with an increased supply, the price has to come down. Well, that would make sense if there was a housing market, but there isn't a housing market. There's a market for single-family housing, and there's a market for multifamily housing, and there are other markets, too, and they don't necessarily overlap. 
Now, you are either going to live in a single-family home or a multifamily home, but when you go out and search for a home, you're going to decide in advance whether you're going to search for a, a condo in a high-rise or a mid-rise or a single-family home. You're not going to say, gee, a, a, a high-rise condo that costs a, a million dollars and is 1,100 square feet in size is equal uh, to me to a $250,000 2,500 square foot home uh, on a quarter acre lot. They're not the same thing, and the market for one is not equal to the market for the other. So simply increasing the supply of multifamily housing, which most Americans don't want to live in, although a few do, is not going to make single-family housing more affordable, especially if we reduce single-family housing to do it, if we tear down single-family homes to build multifamily. A a major issue that Scott is ignoring is that it costs more to build multi-level housing, three, four, five-story or high-rise housing. It costs more per square foot than it does to build low-rise housing. So if he's talking about low-rise multifamily, that might cost about the same per square foot as low-rise single-family. But he's not. He's really talking about mid-rise, four- and five-story buildings, or high-rise, which is six stories and above. That costs a lot more per square foot. So when we take houses that cost $100 a square foot, tear them down and replace them with mid-rise or high-rise that cost 300 to $500 a square foot, that doesn't make housing affordable. Now, yeah, when we I look agree. at the history of this, when we look at the history of this, urban planners have wanted to densify cities for decades. It's been a goal on the urban planning agenda for various reasons. They think that dense cities, people will drive less, and somehow that's better. They think that in dense cities, people will take transit more, and somehow that's better. They think that in dense cities, people won't be as fat. They'll be more fit because they'll walk around more, and somehow that's better. None of these things are really true. Uh, People drive a lot in the densest urban area in in the United States. In fact, the densest urban area in the United States is known for being also the urban area that's most automobile-oriented, and that's Los Angeles. Uh, So when they say, we're going to make cities denser and that'll get people to drive less, they're saying, we're going to turn cities into Los Angeles. Won't that work? We'll have less congestion, just like Los Angeles. We'll have more affordable housing, just like Los Angeles. Well, it turns out Los Angeles is, by most accounts, one of the three or four most congested cities in America. It also has some of the least affordable housing in America. So how uh, does this prescription work? It doesn't work at all. And what's really sad to me is that not only are the central planners promoting this idea, but that free market supporters like Scott and others have fallen into their trap of saying, oh, yes, an increased supply must mean more affordable housing, so therefore let's get rid of single-family zoning. When that's not what people want, and it's not going to make housing more affordable or get people property rights that they want. Yeah. 
No, I agree. It's it's um it doesn't seem like it, it seems like a one anything anything you know government or planners do from the perspective of a blank you know, blanket zoning, right? You, there's always people that suffer. It's a one size fits all solution that doesn't work for everybody. So it seems like a multi pronged approach. It, it should be the way to go, right? Break. Can you break down why why is multifamily actually it, it, anything that's a mid mid or high rise above you know the lower level? I think you would kind of conceded that it's possible. That those could be on par with single family, but why are the why are the mid to high high um, high rises? Why are those so much more expensive than just building? You would think because we're we're told in planning school, in architecture school, that you're 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 making the most use of the land. You're repeating you know this floor plan. It should be it should be more uh, less expensive. Why is it more expensive than just your single family house? Well, it's not only less expensive, it's less desired by most people. Most people would rather have a single-family home. So on one hand, Mm -hmm. the demand for single-family is higher than the demand for multifamily. And on the other hand, multifamily, especially mid-rise and high-rise, is more expensive. So why is it more expensive? It's simple. To build that high, you need a lot more structural support. So you need a lot more concrete. You need a lot more steel. Whereas low-rise can be made mainly out of wood, uh, and mainly out of ordinary, you know, non-processed uh, uh, wood, uh, high-rise requires, and mid-rise requires a lot of heavily processed stuff, concrete, steel, or laminated wood, and things like that. And those are a lot more expensive, and incidentally, they require a lot more greenhouse gases to produce. Uh, concrete, especially, is a huge generator of greenhouse gases. If you build something that's four to five stories tall, you have to have concrete pads between each level for fire protection. And that Mm -hmm. uh, generates greenhouse gases and costs. And then there's the problem of how do you get to the fifth story of a five-story building? Uh, Developers know that uh, Americans don't like to walk up more than one or two stories. So anything taller than three stories has to have elevators, and those are costly. And if you look around uh, any city, you might be able to find some five-story buildings that were built in the 19th century, and you might be able to find some five-story buildings that were built in the last 20 or 30 years. But between about 1900 and 1990, there were almost no five-story buildings built anywhere in the United States for the simple reason that Developers knew they'd have to put in an elevator if they were more than three stories tall, and the elevator was so expensive that you had to build at least six stories in order to recover the cost of the elevator with with your rents or or sales of of uh, uh, space in the building. And so, yeah, uh, what we have now are planners saying, "Let's build four and five story buildings all over the place." So they're taking the least marketable form of uh, uh, of construction and making it their ideal, and we're seeing them pop up all over Denver, all over Portland, all over Seattle, not because it's what the market wants, but it's because it's what the planners have decided we should live in. Yeah, they have. And one of the words they like to use a lot is they like to demonize single-family homes as with the word sprawl, Right. Um, but I think one thing that I think they put into perspective is is how much land we actually still have available in the United States and how much how much of abundance there is. So what kind of what what do you how do you rebut um, against these planners? 
you know, when they when they are up on their podiums and their soapbox and, you know, decrying about sprawl and we're going to lose all the green space. You know, how do you frame that or how should we frame that when we're when we're engaging these people? Well, the first thing is to ask the planners, what kind of a house do you live in? And majority of them will live in single family homes on a large lot. Uh, so it's it's sprawl is bad for everybody else, but it's okay for me uh, because I, you know I somehow deserve it. But everybody else should be penned up into high rise and mid rise buildings. Now the reality is, as you suggest, the vast majority of the United States is rural open space. In fact, that's true of almost every country in the world, other than a few city states like Singapore and one larger country, Bangladesh. Uh, pretty much uh, the world is very thinly populated with human beings. In the United States, uh, only 3% of the country has been developed as, as urban areas. Uh, the most heavily developed state is New Jersey, which is smaller than many counties in the West, and it's about 65% developed. So... Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, it's about 35% developed, so it's still more than 60% rural open space. And uh, every other state is, is a lot more rural open space than that. Um, in the West, uh, on average, states are about 2% developed. California is the most heavily developed state in the West. It's 5% of the state has been urbanized. 95% of the people in California live in that 5% thanks to the urban growth boundaries that planners have implemented since the 1970s there. Um, now, they, then they worry about farms and forests. Well, it turns out we have a huge abundance of agricultural and forest lands in this country. Um, we have about 1.1 billion acres of agricultural lands, and we only grow crops on about 350 million acres. And the amount of acreage we use to grow crops has been shrinking steadily, not because it's been getting paved over, but because our crop yields per acre have been growing faster than our population. And so we don't need as much as we used to need to grow crops. Some of the crop lands that, that no, are no longer needed for growing crops have been turned into forests. And so we have more forests today than we did 100 years ago. And they're growing faster than we can cut them. Um, we, we have no shortage of forests. We have no shortage of croplands. We have no shortage of open space in rural areas. What we have a shortage of is land for affordable housing, meaning low-rise housing. And uh, building uh, higher-density housing is not going to make it affordable. What we need to do is say, okay, Let's rezone some of the lands that have been zoned for rural or agricultural or whatever and open them up for uh, housing and let people live the way they want to live on, in single-family homes that happen to be a lot more affordable than mid-rise. Yeah, Houston, I think Houston is an example that a lot of people like to, like to bring up. And um, I, I've just come to the understanding recently that it's actually zoning is illegal in Texas in any uh, unincorporated area of Texas, which was mind blowing to me. I was actually on a phone call with uh, a county down there because they're looking at doing a project down there. Um, so that's all fascinating stuff. What What is your idea? If there's one thing that developers, architects, anybody who's in the real estate industry who is sort of on our side of this part of the coin, 
and would like to see cities loosen up, what what is what is what do you think is a trajectory or a way that we could start getting rid of um, you know these these zoning codes or at least rezoning things to be a little bit more free market? I think one term I've heard you use is um, to use the disparate impact um, and kind of spearhead a solution there. Um, well, disparate impact is was a supreme relates to a Supreme Court decision that was made in I believe 2015, but that's not really uh, the the path that I see we need to take. The, Houston is really interesting because instead of zoning, they have protective covenants. All new development in, in Houston, uh, in, in the city and in the uh, unincorporated areas outside of the city are built with protective covenants. And these covenants act the same as zoning, except for they're controlled by the, the homeowners who uh, live in the neighborhoods. So you buy a neighborhood, you buy a single-family home in a neighborhood, it's got protective covenants. Uh, you agree that you're not going to turn your home into an apartment building, knowing that every all of your neighbors have also agreed not to turn their homes into apartment buildings. So you know what the density is going to be like. You know that because densities are going to be low, you're not going to have lots of congestion. Your kids can play in the street without giving being worried about being hit by cars very much. Uh, you're going to have lower crime. Uh, multifamily housing actually is, is more criminogenic. It's more vulnerable to crime than, than single-family housing. It's not because people who live in multifamily housing are more likely to commit crimes. It's just that it's easier to do it there. And so uh, by living in a neighborhood of single-family homes, uh, you know you're going to get less crime, you're going to get a lot more safety, uh, and you're probably going to pay lower taxes because despite what the planners claim, it turns out taxes correlate to density. Higher density areas have higher taxes as well as higher housing costs and, and more congestion. So uh, let's say you move into a neighborhood in, in, in the Houston area or actually anywhere in Texas just about, uh, you'll have protective covenants on your property. And let's say a developer wants to develop your property in some other way. The developer has to go to your homeowners association and say, uh, we'd like to change your covenants so that we can do certain things in your area, and we'll pay you to do it. And the homeowners association gets to debate it, and only if 75% of your neighbors agree uh, can those covenants be changed. So there's a process, and it's a fluid process, for changing the covenants, and the covenants do get changed now and then uh, using that process. Now, what if you buy a home in a neighborhood that doesn't have protective covenants? Well, in Houston, if you buy a home like that and you want those covenants, you can petition your neighbors, and if 75% of them agree, you can create a homeowner association, sit down and write covenants, and then you have to get 75% of the agreement for your new covenants, and you've essentially created a zone for your neighborhood. And that happens now and then as well, because perhaps about half the neighborhoods in the city of Houston don't have covenants. Either they had them at one time and they lapsed, or they never, uh, never had them at all. Uh, outside the city of Houston, virtually all uh, neighborhoods have covenants because they've been built more recently and, and the people have kept them up. 
basically, you, if, if somebody violates a covenant and you don't enforce it, then the covenants lapse. So you have to keep you have to keep enforcing them to keep them in place. Sure. So sure. what should other cities to do? Uh, I think the idea of letting people create their own covenants, write their own zones for their neighborhoods, is a, is a good one. And a 75% majority probably is appropriate. You know, wouldn't be 50% plus one imposing their wishes on 49%. It would be uh, 75% and probably the others aren't being hurt too much. One of the things about single-family homes today is that just about everybody who has a single-family home who's bought one today bought it with single-family zoning or single-family covenants. So we're not actually taking away their property rights by keeping single-family zoning, and we're not restoring property rights by uh, by tur turning it into multifamily zoning. In fact, if you talk to the people in these neighborhoods, you'll, they'll tell you that they think you're threatening their property rights by taking away single-family zoning. They think they have a property right to live in a neighborhood with single-family zoning. So I would be against getting rid of all zoning unless you allowed people to, under the Houston formula, uh, create their own homeowner associations and their own protective covenants with a 75% vote. And then we could get rid of all zoning and, and let people create their own uh, little zoning codes, and you'd get a variety of zoning codes. And when you decided to buy a home, you could choose, do you want to live in a home with really strict zoning codes that don't allow you to have pickup trucks on your front lawn or motorhomes in your driveway, or you want to have z looser zoning codes that maybe only regulate the density of the, uh, you know, of the neighborhood, but don't say anything about what color your house has to be and things like that. So we could yeah. get more choice that way, but we would also be able to protect people's right to live in a single-family neighborhood. And this really is the basic philosophical difference that uh, Scott and I have. I think people should be able to decide, I want to live in a single-family neighborhood, and if all my neighbors agree, we're going to keep it single-family. And Scott wants to take away that property right and say, uh, all neighborhoods are going to be vulnerable to be turned into multifamily, which means they're going to be introducing more congestion, more crime, and more public safety problems. Right, right, exactly. And I think, uh, yeah, one of the, you know, he, Scott talks about incremental Incremental um, zoning, in other words, let's say, uh, so let's say it's a single family, uh, we, op we adopt incremental zoning, and so it's a single family neighborhood essentially, and then I decide that I want to make a duplex on my land. Well, I make a duplex, and then the, my neighbor can one up me and do a triplex, and you just keep going and going and going and going. Yeah, it does seem, it does seem like it, it could be an issue. I like the idea of localization um, as well. Who, is there anybody else, are there any other countries that we could look to? I think looking to the past is a good thing. Um, but looking at other countries too and seeing is, is anybody else doing affordable housing better better than us right now, including just home ownership? Well, I think we need to look more at our country. We look around the world, and uh, as recently as 50 years ago, the United States had just about the highest home ownership rate in the world. Today, our home ownership rate is right in the middle. Uh, probably as many countries have higher homeownership rates as have lower homeownership rates. But some of those countries, the high homeownership rates are former Soviet countries where they privatized their 
high-rise housing by giving people the apartments they were living in at, a, at either for free or for a very low cost. And so while it's private, uh, the land they live on isn't private. The land they live on is still owned by the government. In China, they say they have a high home ownership rate, but again, it's, it's people who own condominiums in high-rise buildings, but again, the land they live on is not private. Um, if, you, if we look at countries that don't have a lot of people living in high-rises, it turns out Mexico and Brazil both have much higher home ownership rates than the United States. Uh, but I'm not sure I would really use these as positive examples for the United States. Instead, I'd look around and say, well, who has the highest home ownership rate in the United States? And it turns out there are several states where home ownership rates are around 75%, uh, whereas the, the national average is about 63%, and some states are down around 50%. Well, it turns out the states that are trying to stop sprawl, like Oregon and California, are the ones with less than average home ownership rates. And the states that don't try to stop sprawl, uh, like Texas or Indiana or North Carolina, uh, have much higher home ownership rates. Uh, West Virginia, I think, has the highest home ownership rate, and there's no regulations on sprawl there at all. But a better example, I think, is Indiana, because Indiana is growing much faster than West Virginia. Um, Many counties in Indiana have no zoning. Uh, counties in Indiana are allowed to zone, unlike Texas where they're not allowed to, but not all of them have done it. And so it's really easy to build in, in uh, Indiana because even the counties that have zoning know that they have to keep their zoning codes flexible because if they don't, then developers will just go to the next county over to have more flexible codes or no zoning codes at all and build what, they, build what the market wants. So that's really what we need is if we have zoning, make it responsive to the market uh, and limit the regulations in rural areas, keep the zoning confined to the cities, uh, and, and then make it flexible so that if there is a market demand for something, then, then we can respond to that. But if, if there's a true market demand for high density and we don't have zoning in the rural areas, then developers will build high density in the rural areas. We don't need to invade single-family neighborhoods in the cities to build that high density. And that's a factual yeah. issue that Scott and I disagree on. He thinks there's a huge pent-up demand for high density, and I think there's just a demand for housing, and the preference is for low-density housing, but people will take what they can get, and if thanks to urban planning regulations, you can't build any low-density, low people will take high density, but it's not what they really want. Yeah, it, it's not. And, yeah, one of the things I'd like to kind of wrap up with is something that goes hand-in-hand hand with this whole discussion because people have to get to and from. Um, and so that would be mass transit and, and, and versus cars, right? There's this huge push now to put, you know, quote-unquote the light rails, even though they're not light rails. That was just kind of a term coined a long time ago, um, you know, back, I think, in, in Britain. And so what, what, what do you, you – well, there's another controversial thing I've heard you say on a couple other podcasts and that, but that, I, that I actually really appreciate it because I drive an SUV, is the, the difference in not only um, pollution from – and you know, a lot of people like to think, well, they hear the term light rail, maybe it's light on the environment, but obviously it uses energy. Can you break 
some of your thought process down with that of like why why is there a war on cars and people having this ultimate freedom with their automobile and thinking we need to pack everybody on trains and should we be subsidizing you know the mass transit in addition to we're already subsidizing roads right so unpack that for us and like what what's your thoughts on you know how all that interplays well, first of all, the term light rail does not mean lightweight at all. Uh, you were right that in Britain they had some light railways that were lightweight, but that has nothing to do with what we call light rail in the United States. The term light rail refers to capacity. Light rail is light capacity rail transit. In other words, it's low capacity transit. Buses can move more people per hour than any light rail line in the world and buses cost less than light rail. Buses can go faster than light rail. Buses are more flexible, so if there's an accident, buses can go around them, whereas an accident on light rail shuts down a whole line. So uh, for every possible viewpoint, buses are superior to light rail, and they have been since 1927 when the first bus was developed, which cost less to, to buy and to operate, than uh, streetcars. And from 1927 to 1937, more than 500 American cities switched their streetcars to buses because of the economy of buses. And that continued through about 1974, uh, by which time there were only six cities left in the country that still had streetcars or light rail. Uh, and then the federal government started funding light rail construction. And cities said, well, we want to get some of that federal money. It's free federal dollars. And so they started planning really expensive rail lines, not because they made sense, but because they were expensive in order to get the federal dollars. So light rail is basically a scam. It's a way of separating taxpayers from their money and putting the money into the pockets of people who will make campaign contributions to the right people. Uh, it has nothing to do with improving transportation. It has everything to do with spending a lot of money and enriching a few people. Um, <clears throat> if you want to have transportation that's less polluting, that saves energy, that reduces greenhouse gas emissions, guess what? Cars are the way to go. Cars in, in something like 97 out of the top 100 urban areas in America Cars use less energy and emit fewer greenhouse gases per passenger mile than the average transit system in, in, the, in those uh, urban areas. Uh, if, we, if you talk about your SUV, uh, on average SUVs use less energy and emit less greenhouse gases in 90, than transit in 95 out of the 100 top urban areas in America. So, uh, Transit is the brown form of transportation. It's the kind of transportation that uh, wastes a lot of money, it wastes a lot of energy, and it wastes a lot of uh, 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 clean air. And it's gotten this reputation of being green because they have told us it's green over and over again, and nobody's looked at the numbers lately, nobody except me. And the numbers clearly show that in 1970, transit was green compared to cars, but cars have gotten a lot more fuel efficient, they've gotten a lot cleaner, and they've gotten a lot safer, while transit has gone the other way. It's gotten less fuel efficient, 
It's gotten dirtier. And in the case of light rail, it's gotten more dangerous. Light rail is one of the most dangerous forms of transportation we have when measured in terms of fatalities per passenger mile. So uh, we've been victims of a scam, and we need to recover from that and say, okay, uh, let's, let's emphasize the kind of transportation that can be green, that can be cost-effective, and won't waste as much taxpayer money. Incidentally, uh, we spend about $70 billion a year subsidizing the highways in this country, which I think we should stop. I think we should stop subsidizing highways. We spend about $55 billion a year subsidizing transit in this country. So we think, well, we're spending less on transit than on highways, but highways move 100 times as many people, as many passenger miles a year as transit, and they move infinitely more freight than transit. So we're getting far more from our highways. The average subsidy to highways is about a penny a passenger mile. The average subsidy to transit is a dollar and a penny a passenger mile. So it's more than 100 times as great. Uh, and I think, like I say, transit's a scam. We need to end those subsidies. We'll still have transit if we end the subsidies, but it's going to serve the places where it makes sense and not go to places where it doesn't make sense, and it's going to be using buses, which are efficient, and not rails that are really, really expensive. Yeah. That, you, Randall, um, you, you've, uh, I, hope you've, I hope everybody who's listening has been, at least their ears have been perked. Um, all of your claims are backed up, I know, because I went to your, your wonderful website. I believe it is. Um, if you Google it, it's uh, the Anti-Planner, correct? I'm the anti-planner. If you Google it, anti-planner, I'm the first thing on the list. And uh, for the past almost a year now, I've been publish a, publishing a weekly brief that looks at these issues. And so there's one on uh, energy and greenhouse gases, comparing transit with uh, highways. There's one on subsidies to all forms of transportation, including Amtrak and the airlines, as well as transit and highways. Uh, there's one on transit ridership trends and how they're declining almost everywhere. Uh, and there's several on housing and single-family housing versus multifamily housing. Uh, so uh, take a look at these policy briefs, and I think you'll find a lot of useful information. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Randall, thanks so much for, for, for your time today and sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and, and all of your, a lot of, you know, a, a brief summary of all of your wonderful work that you've been doing. Um, as the anti-planner, uh, I certainly appreciate it, and I hope everybody else who listens to this um, appreciates it. Yeah, where else could people get in touch with you if not for your website? Well, my email address is rot at ti.org. Uh, also, rot at i2i.org. I2i is the Independence Institute, and uh, my title there is Director of the Transportation Policy Center, and I write papers for them, and uh, articles for their journal and things like that. So uh, you can get in touch with me through them. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Randall. We'll uh, we'll have to touch base with you again in, in the near future. Appreciate your time. So sounds great. Okay. Yep. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget to leave us a five star review on the iTunes app. Tip your barista, and we'll see you next week for more Monday morning coffee with Inside the Firm.